The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined by Innes Stepman, who is senior policy analyst for the Independent Women's Forum and host of the High Noon podcast. And we're going to be talking about the big story from America this week, which is the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade. It is on Monday, we had this sensational story, a scoop from Politico, which was a leak, an unprecedented leak of a majority draft opinion from the Supreme Court, from Samuel Justice Alito, that suggested that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. It's not a final verdict, but it looks as though that's the way the court is going. There's been an enormous amount of anger across the globe, rage that America might be on the cusp of reversing abortion and so on. But actually, I think most people knew that this was probably coming. It's just the way that it came about that was particularly sensational. Am I right in saying that? Well, well, the leak is certainly sensational and unprecedented. And, and you're right that people anticipated that you know, Roe might be narrowed. The, the question was whether it was going to be overturned as this uh, leaked draft opinion seems to suggest, or whether it'll be more incremental steps, right? And this draft is not incremental. So in that sense, it is a surprise, I think, to a lot of people. But you're right that generally, because the balance of the court has shifted after the Trump presidency, and that this opportunity arose in terms of the underlying case to overturn Roe v. Wade, it wasn't something that people were completely blindsided by, at least uh, those who follow the court. But it certainly seems to have surprised a lot of people in the political world. There's a lot of theorising, isn't there, as to the, well, whoever was behind the leak and to the purpose and the intent of the leak. I mean, what seems most likely is it's probably a clerk in the Supreme Court who is very, very opposed to abortion and very, very opposed to this decision and wanted to get it out as fast as possible. And perhaps, as one of the Supreme Court's justices has said, to put pressure on the Supreme Court about this very sensitive decision. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right, although I could also see a scenario in which it comes from the right as well. This is an issue that raises people's you know, emotional sort of attachments, and I, I think it's more likely it came from the left, but I wouldn't completely rule out that it came from the right. Regardless of where it came from, it's a huge breach at the Supreme Court. You know, it's not a secret that in America, institutional trust has been falling in virtually everything, right? Media, Congress, the police, for example, just just every institution, even the military, which had for a long time had, had kind of held the trust of Americans, even the military is starting to lose trust among ordinary Americans. So we are in a institutional crisis more broadly. And the court had, to some extent, been able to stay above that fray. Now, that doesn't mean that they hadn't suffered over the decades. And I think actually making decisions like Roe v. Wade really undermined their credibility because they had inserted themselves into this big cultural debate on a basis that was 
legally and constitutionally very, very shaky. And, and that's not only a conservative opinion. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg thought that Roe was an incredibly shaky decision. She would have preferred to see a right to abortion enshrined in some kind of equality principle under the law between men and women. So like the basis for Roe is pretty, I wouldn't say universally, but broadly recognized as really poor law. And the court inserted itself into politics, and I think that that was in such a big way, on such a, a shaky basis, in many ways, that was the beginning of the slide for institutional trust in the court. But nevertheless, there was still some amount of institutional trust that, you know, now I think uh, with this leak, especially inside the institution, will be destroyed. So I really think as consequential as the issue of abortion itself is in American politics, I think this entire episode is, is going to have consequences quite beyond even the four corners of the abortion issue. I think it will add to growing calls on the left, I think, to dismantle the court in a bunch of different ways, whether that's by expanding the number of justices, packing the court, or by starting to ignore Supreme Court decisions. I think you're going to see calls for those kinds of anti-institutional solutions become very popular on the left. I don't want to get too into the kind of complex legal arguments but as you say, a lot of people who even who support abortion, even people who support it very strongly, felt uncomfortable with Roe as a legal argument in favour of a federal right to abortion. But I think the more recent argument was that it was settled law and that it had happened so long ago and it had just sort of settled into the American system. And so therefore there was some kind of precedence. But as far as I understand it, Alito blew that argument away in his majority draft opinion. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much right. Adherence to precedent, stare decisis, the doctrine of stare decisis, is supposed to be, first of all, in some ways subordinate to correct interpretation or at least a reasonable interpretation of the Constitution itself or of federal law itself, right? And look, I'm not trying to downplay the importance of stare decisis because one of the elements of any system of law that has any element of justice is a certain amount of integrity, right, over time. And so that's really what this, where this principle comes from, the idea that it's, it's inherently unjust or unfair to have the law swinging wildly one way or another to the point where people don't know what the law is at any given time. This is a principle of law and justice that all, goes all the way back to Justinian's codes, right? And it's a very, very important principle. That being said, it has to at least be balanced with a correct interpretation of the law. Otherwise, you are just stuck with no matter how bad a decision these nine justices make, you are stuck with it forever, right, because of stare decisis. And obviously, you know, nobody batted an eye, for example, when the court overruled Korematsu a couple terms ago, which was the, the decision that okayed internment of Japanese American citizens, right, during World War II. So obviously there are Supreme Court precedents that have been overturned. So this is, this is not unprecedented in that sense. It's also been a goal of the conservative legal movement um, really since the 70s and definitely since the 80s to roll back this decision, both on the basis that it, it has barred states from and therefore actual American citizens from discussing and voting on the question of abortion, but also on the basis, like, like we said, that this is bad law. There are a lot of left-wing you know, professors of law in various high-placed law schools who will acknowledge and who do acknowledge. I know in, in my experience as a UVA law student, my liberal teacher who had a role, for example, in the Obama administration, even he acknowledged in classes, like, this is, this is not, not the greatest decision. This really is kind of pulled from thin air. I think this is less legally controversial than it, it is political, which, which then again goes to 
the topics that we were discussing before of the institutional trust in the court, how this is going to change American politics uh, now that you are going to have states. Let's be clear, if Roe gets overturned, abortion is not immediately illegal in the United States. It just goes back to the states like every other issue of criminal law or virtually every other issue of criminal law. And the people of those states get to decide whether they want to have abortion as legal through all nine months of pregnancy, the way it is in, in New York state right now, or if they want to restrict or regulate abortion in some way. Let's talk about the conservative pro-life movement in America and how it has very much targeted the legal aspect of the issue in the last couple of decades. Very successfully, I think it's fair to say, because I saw Elizabeth Warren shouting about it in Washington yesterday as though it was some kind of dark, very secret conspiracy. But as far as I understand it, it hasn't been. It's always been the sort of explicit intention of groups like the Federalist Society to say there's a bias against us in the legal system we're going to reverse that and, in fact, perhaps even put the bias in our favour. Do you think it's been a sort of dark conspiracy or, or am I right in thinking it actually is just sort of common sense from a, from a conservative movement that felt very embattled in the 70s and 80s? Yeah, let's not forget that this all started, much like the debate over contentious Supreme Court confirmation hearings, right? Let's not forget that a lot of this, the conservative legal movement was in large part started by an incredibly activist court in the 1970s, culminating in this decision in Roe v. Wade, but in many other decisions in the 70s. And uh, that's when the right realized, okay, we are going to have to, when in the past, for example, appointees to the Supreme Court had been made basically only on a sort of political neutral basis almost. A lot of those appointees, it was just somebody who had a really, really good sort of career in the law, plus who was perhaps known to one party or the other as registered for that party or, or hung around with people in that party. And it was much, much less ideological. Once the court became active and started inserting itself into everyday politics, because let's face it, the role of the court originally and constitutionally is much more narrow than the role the court took on in the 70s, including in decisions like Roe. And that's, that's essentially when the court became that active, it was inevitable that there would be a response from the right. Otherwise, their alternative was just to keep every you know, sort of issue that bubbled up in American politics was found to have a constitutional hook in some way, and sort of regardless of the original meaning of the Constitution. And each time that happened, that issue was essentially like abortion removed from the public debate at least in terms of actually passing legislation or, you know, governors making actions and so forth. So, I mean, there's, there's a large element here of the uneasy relationship that I think the left has increasingly had with democracy itself in America. Now, we always hear it the other way, right? I always hear, like, democracy dies in darkness and, you know, Donald Trump is a fascist dictator or whatever. But in this case, what has really been happening um, in the past decades has been the left simultaneously pushing for an expansion or generously, I'll call it like a protection of the franchise, right? We can debate about whether that actually protects the franchise or whether, you know, voter ID laws protect the franchise. But let's say from their perspective, they're very concerned about protecting the franchise, you know, increasing turnout and even expanding the franchise, for example, to 16 year olds. And at the same time, we've seen the left restrict the issues that the people that they're, they're so you know, excited about voting can actually vote on, right? So they've removed abortion, gay marriage, a lot of these contentious social issues via the courts. And then on the other hand, we have the enormous administrative state that deals with 
dozens of issues, thousands, sorry, not even dozens, thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of issues every single day where bureaucrats are completely beyond the reach of democratic input or democratic will. Nobody votes for them, right? We saw this in the entire COVID episode of the last two years where bureaucrats have enormous unilateral power, even though nobody directly voted for them. So I think this issue really fits directly into that larger dynamic where the right has felt that the table has been unfairly set by the Supreme Court case in 1973. And what overturning this case will do is not make abortion illegal, but merely actually replace the issue in the debate where both the left and the right have to make their arguments about that issue and actually convince and persuade the American people and the American voter whether you know one side or the other is correct on the issue. And that's, that's not actually how our politics have gone. That sounds really basic, but it's not how our politics has gone on this issue and, and many others. Well, but looking at the politics of it, you, you could see in, in the last however many hours it's been, there is a palpable sense of excitement among Democrats that actually here is an issue where they can fight politically, where they can rally their base, where, they, where they're not going to necessarily be defeated in sort of political debate, and which they can focus on. We all know they're approaching the midterms where they're looking at a real drubbing. Do you think Democrats now see this as a sort of possible turning point in the Biden presidency, where they can make this a war against the old religious right that they sort of thought that they had once vanquished? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I certainly, I think that this is going to become a huge issue in the midterms. And it's interesting because it almost feels like going back to, as you say, like 1990, right, in the sense that even the culture war issues have transformed over the last several years very, very much in, in Republicans' favor as a general rule, right? When the, the culture war issues are you know, gender ideology in public schools or critical race theory in public schools, right? That produces a very different sort of electoral distribution. And we saw that in Virginia, that in fact, this electoral sort of coalition that is against some of the cultural pushes of the woke left is very broad and very powerful. And I honestly, I, I wouldn't presume to predict how throwing this issue, abortion, back into the mix is really going to change the entire the dynamic around cultural issues in the United States and therefore around the, the midterm elections. I mean, I, I think there's just a lot of more structural or larger issues that are, are skewing against Democrats in this election. I think it's probably going to be still a good election for Republicans. It remains to be seen whether this issue helps or hurts Republicans, right? I actually think the biggest way that the left could make it actually really helpful for Republicans might be to react as they did, for example, during the Kavanaugh nominations, right? If there starts to be riots or buildings start to be burned down or people beating on the on the doors of the Supreme Court, I think that that might push moderates back the other way. Like, let's let's not forget, though, that the underlying law at issue here, the state law, it banned abortion after 15 weeks gestation, with some exceptions for the life of the mother. That is essentially the abortion regime of half of the countries of Europe. This is not a particularly sort of extreme law. Now, it may be that some, some states want to pass life from conception laws. It's not really clear yet, but the law at issue itself here, and for example, the law in Florida that, that DeSantis has so-called trigger laws, right, if Roe v. Wade is, is overturned, that's also a 15-week law. That's actually very much in line with what the average American thinks about abortion. The average American, the majority of Americans think that abortion should remain legal through the first trimester, and then it drops off precipitously from there. 
in the second and third trimesters, where you now have um, Democrats, for example, as I mentioned, in New York embracing abortion on demand for any reason, all nine months of pregnancy, and even advancing laws that prevent medical care from being administered to an infant that's born alive during one of these procedures. It's not at all clear to me sort of which way moderates are going to skew on this issue, even if, for example, they're not life from conception, kind of pro-life Republicans, it's definitely possible that Democrats could overplay their hand and not recognize that the majority of Americans are not comfortable with abortion after the first trimester. In conclusion, then, would you say that for moderate-minded people, there's the opportunity of a, a legislative compromise here that might be more palatable to America? I don't think this issue will ever be palatable to everyone in America, but a settlement that's more palatable to more Americans than what you have at the moment. Well, I mean, I think that's the idea, right? When you return an issue to democracy, you tend to get a consensus that reflects the will of the people probably better than nine unelected judges. Now, of course, judges are supposed to be unelected. They're purposefully removed by several degrees from the political process, and that's that's good and right. But then the question is, when, for example, in Roe, they weigh in on something that's a contentious cultural issue that doesn't have a very clear peg into their actual jurisdiction as judges in terms of, of interpreting the Constitution, I do think you're going to get, overall, you're going to get a map in America if Roe is overturned. You're going to get some states that are going to be very, very radically pro-choice. You're going to get a handful of states that will probably be radically pro-life and a lot of purple states that will shake out somewhere in the middle because that's actually where Americans are on the issue of abortion. And what we've had is for the last, you know, whatever it is, um, (laughs) math, not my strong suit, almost 50 years, right, has been this artificially imposed regime saying that states cannot in any way, any substantive way, restrict abortion. And, And that doesn't represent the American voters. So I think ideally, at least, when this issue returns to the public sphere, you would expect state law to start reflecting the opinions of the state citizens on this incredibly contentious cultural issue. And that's honestly, that's how the political process should work. Ines, thank you so much for coming on. It's been uh, wonderful to have your insights. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. 